Axel, I feel like I, I need you to come in and, and teach my class uh, with me some of these days. You just know so much and it's so great. And I, 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 I the reason, uh, and I'm so sorry for talking so much in this space, but I, I just think, and this is something that I tell people anytime I, anytime I talk about foreign affairs or I've been talking about what's going on in Ukraine is people need to, as Axel so eloquently uh, told uh, us, uh, look back in history, history you know, history is obviously super important into understanding what's going on. I think history will also give us clues into what's going to happen. Thank you. Hey, I just wanted to add, um, Mr. Harvey, that you've been very gracious and Axel has waxed eloquently as always. And I really appreciate your humility. Um, I come on this space and sometimes I think I know something and I don't. And um, you're more than welcome to come back and contribute and learn. And I wanted to say, Mr. Harvey, thank you for um, coming on and, and, and uh, you know, sharing your voice. And uh, we have a lot of talented, um, intelligent people in the space that can uh, reshape your understanding of the e Ukraine war conflict. And um, I'm better for it. I'm better because you're here. And um, I'm better because Axel is here to reframe some of the um, opinions or or, or um, perspectives that you may have. And I respect you for um, being um, humble enough to say, hey, you know what? I didn't see it that way. So, brother, thank you. We need you in this space. So, please. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, liberals. So I'm going to do uh, some quick housekeeping. So uh, first and foremost, if you guys could uh, retweet and uh, like the retweets for the space, uh, it'll help us get the word out. Uh, we like to spread the word about the Waltz Report, uh, let as many people know about it as possible. Second off, uh, Waltz Report provides uh, expert analysis. We have a lot of guests come up and provide uh, their expertise for free. Uh, we have a lot of guest speakers, uh, generals and academics who come on the Waltz Report and provide uh, free interviews and analysis. Uh, all we ask is that you donate to Maria Aid. Maria Aid is an organization where 100% of your donation will go directly to helping Ukrainian soldiers and civilians. So we don't have any administrative costs. It's all handled by volunteers. Uh, right now we're doing a drive for 1,000 tourniquets. Uh, we're very close to our goals, so we do ask that people uh, pitch in and donate and uh, try to help us reach our, our goal for a 1,000 tourniquets. Uh, tourniquets are one uh, thing that really helps save a lot of lives uh, uh, very easily compared to a lot of the other things we can do. So uh, tourniquets are an absolute uh, must-have uh, in, in this uh, war. And uh, lastly, uh, if you guys want to come up and ask a question related to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, please come on up and raise your hand and we'll uh, answer, uh, call on you and uh, try to try our best to answer your question. So uh, real quick, uh, Stephen uh, GF has been trying to get up and uh, ask a question for a long time. So I'll, I'll let you go ahead, Stephen. Stephen, go ahead. Oh, no, it's uh, absolutely fine. For I'm just listening because uh, I keep on losing the internet. So I, I miss it. Um, I'll probably have another question later. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so we also have Clyde. Uh, Clyde, go ahead. Just one question. Um, um, people were commenting about um, Camille Galeev's threads earlier, and he's expressing a lot of concern in the last few days about Central Asia cooking off because of the somewhat related to the instability in Russia and the problems with Uzbekistan and all the demonstrations there. Young population, very young, poor they can't get jobs in Russia anymore. Um, and is this, how much of this is a big concern regarding Central Asia as a whole, you know, basically cooking off and making 
make, creating to Russia's instability and what comes after Putin? Could it be worse than what Putin is? Um, and uh, or if it breaks up into various republics, and I'm sure the security apparatus in this country is worried about that with the nukes and so forth. So just a, was asking for comments on that from some of the experts on the panel. Thanks. Sure. Yes. Part, I think that Joseph is well. Yep. Uh, yeah. Joseph. <laughs> Finally, my, my wheelhouse. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I, I study Tajikistan, which is uh, the country next door. And uh, they're Persian. They speak Persian language uh, as opposed to Uzbekistan. They're, they're Turkic speakers. Uh, uh, closer related to like Kazakhs in terms of language. Uh, but Kazakhs are more of like a nomadic people, and Uzbeks are more of like a farming people. That's like a very rough distinction but uh and then they sort of have a slightly different history and uh anyway it's uh, very complex but uh i think it's safe to say that uh up until recently up until everything turned upside down with uh, russia's security situation uh in central asia the main concern for russia was trying to prevent any kind of uh islamic uh extremist government right they didn't want any kind of uh problems on their border any kind of Islamic states that might harbor Chechen separatists or other Islamic separatist groups. And there is a group in Uzbekistan called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan that uh, potentially uh, you know, represented a problem for the Uzbek state. Uh, but yeah, the, the Uzbek state in general has been uh, not the most stable. There's been protests against the president for a long time. Uh, just a varying like uh, severity in terms of crackdowns against the protests. Uh, and just Central Asia uh, is struggling a lot because uh, migrant labor was a big part of their economy, uh, going to work in Russia and then sending money back and just sort of the general collapse of the Russian economy and new projects in the Russian economy has resulted in a collapse of those remittances uh, the, of the migrant labor that's sending the money back and uh, energy prices have gone way up and uh, Central Asia doesn't really have their own kind of a supply of, of energy. It's not like Kazakhstan isn't like giving their energy to the rest of Central Asia. Uh, there's a few projects like in the works, some hydropower projects, but they're just like not enough for the energy needs. So what they rely on is a sort of a direct energy subsidy from Russia. And uh, in exchange, they kind of give their political loyalty. That's kind of the, the deal there. So in, insofar as like, how does this affect Ukraine? Um, probably not very much. I think that um, there is a slight military presence by Russia, um, you know, in Central Asia. It's mainly to try to deal with, uh, you know, uh, Islamic uh, extremism, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, but uh, I think probably it's going to have a relatively limited bearing in the short term. It'll probably have a more serious bearing in the medium to long term. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. Uh, yeah, trying to, I, I'm trying not to go too deep in the weeds here in terms of uh, uh, how it affects the situation directly in terms of Ukraine. So, yeah, I would say probably, probably not too much, but it is like one extra thing that Russia has to be concerned about in terms of things happening on its border that it doesn't. Joseph, we, Joseph, I have to say this. We have to do, um, say, a Stan uh, segment at some point in time. Absolutely. You know, and one thing I said when I uh, got hosting privileges was like I, I, I texted Maddie and I said, hey, if you ever want to come on and do like a sec, you know, my door's open. So I'm trying to organize something, but uh, we'll see. But yeah, we want to keep it related to Ukraine for sure. No, no, no uh, I think it has, had, no, it has a very big impact on the, the geopolitical setup and what will happen in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan matters a great deal because it is the border of Russia. 
and it is where the next uh, con uh, the next conflicts may uh, flare up during the war. Um, so in that regard, maybe we should have a little look see as to what we can prepare for next weekend with you and Marty, if that's convenient for you. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I don't know when Marty has free time, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of working on something. We'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, yeah, I, I do appreciate it, Axel. We'll we'll try to work on something for sure. Well, what and uh, and and I'll I'll be done here in a second. But I think one of the central thesis of what Camille has been talking about the last at least the last couple of weeks is that, and and even longer than that, is that the weakening of Russia from this war could cause this breakup um, of. Russia itself into its various republics, and he's really concerned about that. So, um, I mean, I think that it is related to the Ukrainian war, just because the Ukrainian war may hasten this this breakup if it could happen, or other cooking off of Central Asia. So, anyway, thanks a lot. It would be very interesting to hear more analysis about that down the line. Thanks. Hey, yeah, thank Joe. You. You know, I, so, I know uh, uh, you know Fulbright scholars that came to study at my university uh, from Uzbekistan, and uh, you know, there it's. It's a it's a situation that's happening there, uh, but uh, yeah, right now uh, I'm trying to kind of keep the focus on Ukraine. But uh, yeah, it's it's a big deal uh, to me for sure uh, as someone who studies that region. So I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, liberal. Yeah, my apologies. Didn't mean to step over you. Um, yeah, Uzbekistan. Um, do you have a an opinion of um, what's going on there? And I think the fact that Russia is attacking Ukraine is perhaps um, loosening a pressure valve on the Caucasus and, and these uh, vassal states. Yeah, so uh, again, I'm not an expert on Uzbekistan. So uh, there are a lot of Tajiks who live in Uzbekistan. That's kind of like the, um, I don't know, it's like a, I don't want to say attention point, but for lack of a better term, attention point. Um, there, there have been varying periods where, uh, so, so the Tajiks, uh, the, the modern borders of Tajikistan don't include the cities of Samarkand and Bukhara. Those are the two sort of traditionally um, historically Persian cities, right? But now it's it's a mixed population, and it's been that way for, like, millennia. Um, it's I'll put it this way. The Turks and the Persians, like, lived together in symbiosis. There wasn't, like, this big distinction. But more Turks – or, sorry, more Tajiks lived in the mountains. So modern Tajikistan is, like, that area. And their capital, it's called Dushanbe. It means, um, like, Monday. Um, that wasn't a city like it means Monday because they used to meet there like all the different towns to like have a big uh, market like a bazaar uh, every Monday. So that became the new capital of this because they didn't have Samarkand or Bukhara. So, um, yeah, there's like Tajiks who live in um, Uzbekistan uh, and it's kind of like, you know, I wouldn't say they're oppressed. They're not like actively, you know, put down. But, um, you know, you don't go around like calling yourself a Bukhara or a, like a. Uzbek Tajik or Bukhara Tajik. Uh, and there's lots of people in Tajikistan who kind of, uh, I wouldn't say like th they lived in Bukhara in, during the Soviet time, but um, now that they're like, you know, there's modern borders and there's like sort of tensions over like water resources and power resources and stuff. Um, they kind of like, I don't know, they have, they still have a connection to the city, but it's not as, um, not as firm as it used to be. But yeah, as far as like, I'm just trying to trying to tie this back to Ukraine specifically. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't think so. Like Russia doesn't have a, they have a like one major military base in the whole region, to my knowledge. Um, but maybe Axel knows. Uh, I mean, they don't have a big military presence directly in Uzbekistan. Hey, Axel, do you know anything about it? Um, no, Uzbekistan not. But they have been, shall we say, present directly at the border, quite literally, for a long time. 
Yeah, there was a Russian army in Tajikistan specifically because of the border with Afghanistan. And like, I mean, basically it was there, A, to keep an eye on Tajikistan because they were kind of concerned about the whole situation there. And B, because um, they, Tajikistan kind of asked, they said, like, look, uh, at least this is what they told me, like Afghans were coming over the border, you know, warlords or Taliban were coming over the border kidnapping people. And so we asked the Russians to come. But it's been mired with problems. more than once, uh, the base has been effectively the, the the soldiers at the base have been chased out of the country for you know extreme corruption, um, you know like selling drugs, uh, uh, you know selling uh, equipment and weapons and things like raping that. And, so, and pillaging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's a it's a kind of a. I don't know. They, they seem to want the military base there, but at the same time, they would they would really appreciate it if they just kind of did their job and guarded the border. Uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a, a big thing. But uh, yeah, in terms of like short term consequences, I can't really name any. But in terms of medium to long term consequences, yeah, Russia has done gone to considerable effort to try to keep these regimes in Central Asia politically aligned with them. And a big part of that is making sure that any kind of like Islamic uh, influence is kept to a minimum. And I would say they've done like a reasonably okay job at it so far in terms of like meeting their security goals, for lack of a better word. And I think that that job has just gotten a way harder. Like, I don't know how you keep the lid on this in Central Asia anymore. Uh, And it's going to be a problem for them in the medium to long term. It's like, you know, it's 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 like with everything else it's like the economy and 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 the military putin like traded all of his chips in instead of like having a sound strategy here in central asia he just said meh well i don't care about the long term like i'm just gonna burn everything for this uh, invasion of ukraine and and commit a genocide you know it seems that's how it kind of feels to me as a an analyst of the region i guess Uh, so i'll leave it there thanks guys thanks joseph i would posit that oh sorry go ahead liberal oh sorry Yeah, I would posit that the uh, Ukrainian war has perhaps created some doubt in these countries that are vassal states of uh, Russia. And um, we may see some um, opposition, maybe not militarily, but just, uh, you know, people processing um, against, um, you know, being uh, subjugated by So I do have maybe one anecdote, which is, uh, you know, my city is a very, a very well-run city, Phoenix, Arizona. We're very proud of how well-run our city is. And one of the things that happens is we get international delegations here that, like, tour the city, right, uh, to see how well-run it is. And uh, uh, the Tajik delegation came, and, and you know, I, I, they were very surprised because I was just – someone emailed me, so I just knew where to be at the right time. And I was there, and I, like, spoke their language and, like, knew everything about Tajikistan. So they were very, like, surprised to see me. But so I, I sort of hung out with those guys and they're sort of like the future government, you know, leaders. And, uh, you know, they were basically, I would say basically pro-Russia, but whenever like they would pull me aside or like I would have like a more personal conversation with people, one of the things they would tell me is like, we're doing our best to like diversify our strategy here. We don't want to be like singularly tied to Russia. We want to try to, um, and they have, I would say three main concerns, right? They've got water concerns. This is not a place that's near water. There's no like easy water supply. The RLC doesn't cover all of Central Asia and it doesn't, uh, it's not sufficient uh, to support the population entirely. Uh, So water is a big concern and agriculture, you know, water for agriculture. 
Uh, energy is a big concern. They're not really like an energy producer outside of Kazakhstan. And then lastly, uh, migrant labor. They need somewhere that they can send people to work um, that uh, they can send money back. And so, you know, if that's South Korea, if that's Japan, if that's the United States, or if it's a, that's Russia, right now it's Russia, they don't care. So they've been doing their best to like diversify all those things, but it's slow going, right? I mean, the, the, the options are pretty limited in Central Asia. The other option is China, which is like not a great, you know, option. Uh, so, you know, that it's, it's tough for them, I think, in terms of, um, uh, having alternatives and having a way to get out. I think what, what needs to happen and Mahdi probably would agree here. I would, I would think as a Kazakh is Kazakhstan needs to take the lead. They've got, they've got the resources and the population and the military to stand up to Russia and they have enough, um, kind of, they produce steel and oil and all these things that, you know, a country, if they took the lead in Central Asia, they could say, okay, we can, we can fix these energy problems and we can fix these economy problems. And, you know, I don't, it wouldn't be perfect, but I think they, they, they have, they're the best in terms of an indigenous player here to really um, make something happen in terms of standing up to Russia and having a more independent Central Asia. And the other option, I guess, is, is a Chinese kind of hegemony there. But yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks, guys. Uh, sorry for rambling. Chinese hegemony has not really worked out for, shall we say, both nomadic as well as farming tribes of Ugric and Mongol descent, has it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, to some extent, so in, in the Tajik case, right, uh, the, the leader of the country, basically there are a bunch of Chinese working on infrastructure. They're building buildings everywhere and roads. And I would ask people, like, what is that building going to be? And they're like, I don't know, like maybe an office, maybe an apartment, maybe both. Um, so there's just this, like, wave of Chinese building. And I was like, how do they pay for this? And they said, oh, well, the president, like, gave, gave the, like, a big piece of the country, like, to China. And I was like, what? And, yeah, so apparently the, the Chinese sort of got, I, I basically sovereign rights over a chunk of Tajikistan. And it's a chunk that has certain mineral, you know, deposits and things so yeah i think like you know aside from the presidents that are making these kind of shady deals like the street opinion of chinese is not positive that's been my my broad experience there and i think yeah it's i don't i don't uh rate chinese influence getting very far into central asia in terms of their ability to like actually you know force them or become hegemons of their region i think you're right about that axel uh, i'll leave it there thanks this is why the place needs an american air base yeah, you know, we built Tajikistan a bridge, and I don't. We used airports. I don't know if we built them air. We might have built a part of an airport, like an airbase at part of an airport. But um, yes, yeah, they is. loved the bridge. They were big fans of the bridge to ta to Afghanistan. They were like, "This is really going to uh, help us out in terms of like our economy." And because there's a certain things they can't get from like Russian trains, uh, that, and then the trains have to go through Turkmenistan, which is a whole thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Turkmenistan, by the way, guys, is like, uh, you know, Turkic North Korea, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's like a hermit kingdom. But uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a complex region. But uh, yeah, again, we're getting kind of in the weeds here. I want to keep it about Ukraine. I could talk, I could talk about it literally all day. That's, that's another, another, uh, another conversation. So sorry, back to you. Ak Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Let's go to Stephen here to hand up. Hi. Um, well, I'm going to briefly uh, mention Uzbekistan. Uh, Shavkat Mirziyoyev uh, is apparently going to change the constitution to reduce Karal Pakatan's autonomy, which is why the protests have happened. So I don't think that it's certainly in the short term, 
this is a major problem for Russia. But what I want to talk about is something that uh, before my internet gave out, Mr. Harvey had mentioned about technology. Um, and it comes to the question of secondary sanctions. Russia is uh, getting, it's getting a lot of technology from China. It's also passed laws where it's not illegal for it to import technology, Western technology from third countries. So the question is, when are we, when are we going to see secondary sanctions implemented by America? Obviously, then other Western countries will follow because Russia is... Russia's economy is weakening. They're uh, making it hard to export their own stuff in a way to stop inflation from rising. But what money they're getting, which is still coming from oil, gas, coal and various other things, uranium as well, is going into the military industrial complex. So my point is, when are we going to see secondary sanctions affecting other countries that will start to degrade Russia's ability to use uh, that technology in its military industrial complex, which would also shorten the war against Ukraine. It would make it much harder, of course, for Russia to fight. Does anyone have any uh, anything to, on this at all? I've got you covered. Okay. So, yes, you are correct that Russia, if it could, would use every last dime of its stockpile that doesn't land in a a corrupt oligarch's pocket for its military war effort of genocide. That is absolutely true. However, it's not currently able to do so for imports. One of the major things that happened that had us floored here at the Walter Report and probably all over the world is that when sanctions first hit Russia, it was like in, I want to say it was their, Mar their March and it was either March end or their April end imports were down 90% or 91% month over month. It was an eye-dropping number. And the biggest Russian imports from, it was their imports from Europe. And the biggest Russian imports from Europe are machine parts, industrial parts, the things you need to run that war machine. That is what they import. There's excellent charts of it out there. Uh, again, I could post a quick sign. I'll go try to hunt that down. But that is what dropped. So currently they're able to sell oil but the way sanctions are affecting the Russian economy negatively, and they are, is that they are not able to use that money to buy war machine parts. So they can't get new stuff. Their, their main tank factory is closed. That's part of why you're seeing them roll out tanks that are older, that people driving them often uh, into the front. So their main tank factory is closed. They're, running, they're rolling out 40, 50-year-old tanks often into the battlefield. Um, and the... So, so the sanctions are having effect. Yes, I agree. Sanctionary sanctions would be nice. Um, the biggest one that would be really helpful would be, quite frankly, just directly getting forcing. You're going to have to do some major arm twisting, Siemens and Heider, Heidenhans, that if they don't get on board with stopping all support of Russian military, the Russian you know military industrial complex, that they're going to be not welcome to like do business in Europe or America ever again, because it needs to be so painful to them to not do business with Russia that they choose to risk losing Russia as a client forever because they probably will, which is why they haven't done so yet. It's one thing to not send the new machines. It's another thing to basically break all their existing machines, which they could do by the way, um, which they have yet to do. 
critical infrastructure is the soft underbelly of pretty much everyone's economy. And in this case, Russia is not only no different, if anything, they are much worse off than other major Western economies. So yes, absolutely. The sanctions are having effect. So yes, they're piling up cash, but they're not able to spend it on things. That's also a big part of the reason why the Russian ruble is so strong. Selling oil, lots of money coming in, not able to buy things. So the money's not going out. This is the standard macroeconomic applies here. The Russian ruble is strengthening a lot. Uh, does that answer your question, or are there any other parts of that that I didn't? I think for me, it's uh, just a, a brilliant analysis. Thank you. I, I'm not an economist, I'm a political scientist. Um, but in terms of the, we are seeing that Russia is importing from third countries Western technology to go into its military industrial complex. Is that, and so. I'm just wondering when are, you know, surely there, there is some discussion going on in the American, probably British governments as well, as to when secondary sanctions are going to actually happen, because that would finally break. I mean, the econ- we know that the Russian economy is faltering. My, my partner is Russian. I see it every day. Um, but in terms of, you know, the secondary sanctions that would break the econ- that would finally break the economy. It would reduce even further Russia's ability to wage this this war. Would it not? Hey, you, 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 you will not hear arguments from from me or pretty much anyone who is a regular speaker or host of the Walter Report suggesting both stronger sanctions and more weapons for Ukraine. Uh, quite frankly, I put those in reverse. Unless you're referring to getting those two aforementioned German companies to break the German war machine straight up. But I, I'm really curious, which companies are you referring to that you think are exporting current war material to Russia since the war has started and sanctions have come down? I don't have any examples of uh, Western companies um, coming in, but we do, you know, we hear, I hear reports from places like Medusa, from uh, Media Zona, from other Russian uh, so-called foreign agents to give them their official Kremlin title, as wrong as that is. Um, where Russia is trying to get deals done with countries like Iran, obviously, and other country, other places as well, to buy their existing stockpiles of Western military technology and bringing them into Russia. Well, well I'm sure. Okay, Medusa, our friends uh, who've been completely overturned over a long time in Riga, are certainly. Uh, they're putting up a good face to all of this, are they not? Because they have not really published anything detrimental <clears throat> to Russia other than being the court jester opposition uh, in order to mirror messaging. But <clears throat> let's cast Medusa and their troops aside for the moment. In terms of <clears throat> what Iran can deliver, that is fairly limited, as I think you do understand, given the fact that Iran itself already has massive issues uh, procuring the stair parts it needs. At the moment, yes, the American government uh, was so kind as to provide them with a, a few hundred billion quid, as we would say, a few years ago in cash, quite neatly, because they released what was once owed to the, or what was once deposited by the Central Bank of Persia and uh, should have never been given to them, but then somebody decided it was a good idea to put it on a plane, which is quite ridiculous if you think about it. Um, but having said this, 
Iran does not procure anything other than a few bits and bobs from Siemens under guidance, by the way, of the American government, because Siemens is supposed to supply uh, chips, respectively components, to help run certain installations in Iran, which are considered to be essential under the former agreement. Now, having said this, they have been known to buy um, guidance chips on the uh, grey market, which originate from France. That's true. Have they been giving those to um, the Russians? Potentially, but that must have been a long time ago, because otherwise uh, the French would have been able to track it since the beginning of the invasion. And there is no material coming from uh, East Asia other than maybe, maybe, from some uh, rogue sources in Vietnam at the moment, and they are always that because they like to trade with their erstwhile um, supporters in China, who then are the facilitators of transfers to Russia. But then again, even there, guidance related on, uh, say, weapon systems, uh, relevant uh, materials are probably not coming in large amounts out of that area. Now, China does not necessarily deliver um, high-grade equipment, contrary to what people in the West have now been told to believe in the past 20 years by Chinese propaganda, their capacity uh, as to developing really what I would call fourth or fifth generation components is, uh, well, shall we say, very limited and um, having a high rate of failure and a high rate of uh, um, being incongruent with what we believe a weapon system should deliver. Let's put it this way. I don't think that there is any real evidence that Western technology is being delivered other than from, say, rogue weapons traders who may have bartered with them across certain uh, borders, be it Turkmenistan and the likes. But the impact is low. Now, as the secondary sanctions having an impact on the country, I think you should look no further than the current uh, proposal to, for Mr. Blinken to finally do his duty and convey to the president, which of course he will only do if the president asks for him to do so, because he, Mr. Blinken will do whatever the White House tells him. Um, but to finally elevate the proposal of rendering Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, because that kicks off everything you need. You do not need to impose a further complicated sanctions regime, which never will come into place. You simply need to make sure that nobody in the world, nobody on the whole world well, can aid, abet, cooperate, um, support, facilitate, or be, a be sorry, or be a beneficiary of trading with Russia in any shape or form. If that is the case, then the whole uh, might of the U.S. government, its uh, agencies, just like under the land lease already in existence, is brought to bear. And that is, in this case, the IRS and the ATF and Treasury. This is what you really need to do, because we do know that when such... Uh, regime is declared, as in the case of Iran, as in the case of North Korea, their options of importing anything of note and relevance are fairly limited. And this is what's coming. And as soon as it's being implemented and declared, Russia will squeak, squeal, and uh, probably write blood, I mean, say, cry bloody murder. But that is the only way of castigating and demeaning and derogating and ultimately degrading Russia. Portland, did you find out whether we can now finally declare this a high mile strike? Uh, better odds than not. Um, I, I would, I feel like that would be such a big thing to say um, that 
that I just don't see enough information on the page here for me to make that determination. But like, um, that's all right. If it's not high Mars, I don't know what it is. Come on, Charlotte. As the original asker of the question, I don't want to force Portland in any position, but I think, you know, we, we've gotten everything out of him. We can, I made him choose. I said, hi Mars or Tochka. And he said, I guess hi Mars. So I think that's the best we're going to get out of him. That's my, Personal opinion. Sorry, back to you. Alex. So, so here's here's my only hang up on this one, which is that the projectile is coming in a little bit too fast for the known performance parameters um, of the M30 M31A1. It's not it's not implausibly fast, but it's a little too fast, and now that could just be measurement error. Um, that could be any number of factors. So it could be high Mars, definitely. I'm just not prepared to say that it definitely is high Mars. Could yeah, you describe the target and the size of the target and uh, the size of the explosion? Do we know? Oh, yeah. No, I, th so, okay. So the problem that we have here is that um, the... Explosion is too far away, and the um, the munition detonates uh, in an airburst mode, which Tochka can't do. Um, and then there is a very, very, very violent cook-off um, that looks like an... Uh, look like... Did you say airburst mode? Yeah. Now, let me think. Is there a missile system which we know of? Well, yeah, there is. You know, hi, Mark. Um, I'm saying, you know, um, there's there's a lot going into this that looks a lot like hi, Mars. The fact that there were interceptions. Which missile does it look like, given the speed and the impact and the specific airburst? And what do we know anything about the size of the explosion? So the size of the explosion is impossible to determine because the the primary detonation gets washed out by the intensity of the secondary. Um, but we do know that there are two detonations because by the si time the sound waves reach the camera, there's actually two audible booms. They, they're very close together. But it, Did you say two? Yeah. Portland, you said two. Let me think, which specific missile fired by HIMARS has the capacity to do a two-phased... Um, uh, uh, no. Sorry, should we say explosion? So the two-phase two boom is actually the primary and the secondary. So there's the munition itself goes off, and then there's the cook-off from the... Uh, ah, so not, not the missile itself. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. no, the, the the missile doesn't go off in a in a two stage. Listen, if this was Atacams and I could prove it, um, you know, I would be screaming. You, you and I would already be drinking. Yeah, I'd be screaming it from the like. I I would go to the tallest building in Portland and I would scream it off the uh, off the observation deck. You know. Um, no, this definitely. So, real quick to, to translate for our audience. So, so Axel said, "How how big is boom?" And Portland said, "I don't know." And Axel said, "Why not?" And Portland said, "Because boom number one happened, which is the missile, and then boom number two happened, which is the fuel depot or the ammo, probably fuel." We're we're saying in this case, 
uh, exploded. So we don't really know what the first explosion looked like in terms of the size. And so we can't really speculate that, that we don't have that data point, unfortunately, because of the second explosion. Uh, sorry. OK, back to you, Portland. So, yeah, I mean, the long and the short of it comes down to if I could tell you, if I could look at that and say that was a 200 pound blast frag warhead with roughly 50 pounds of explosive filler, then with that additional data point, I would be looking at that and being like, that's high Mars. Like, that's definitely high Mars. That's the only data point I don't have. The velocity thing is is kind of a minor issue. Um, but the fact that there were successful interceptions, that tells you that you've got a missile that is not going all that fast, um, which kind of rules out Tochka. Um, the, the fact that it airburst rules out Tochka. Um, and when you're considering what kind of weapons Ukraine has access to, that could hit a, this precise of a target at this range. Basically, what you either have to consider is the ballsiest ever fast jet drivers or HIMARS. Those are basically the options that you have to play. Right. And I think you were mentioning earlier that because you see evidence of uh, interception, meaning the air defense systems were activated, missiles were fired, anti-air missiles were fired, we don't see any downed aircraft, that would indicate to you that it was probably a missile rather than uh, aircraft direct. Would you say that's correct? That, that's exactly correct. I mean, the, the launching aircraft, we already know that this munition was coming in at least Mark 2.25, right? That's a much, much easier, sorry, that's a much harder shoot down than a Frogfoot doing Mark 0.8, right? Um, also, the angle at which the sorry, projectile... Sorry, Paul, quick question. Apologies yeah. for the interruption. What, what kind of missile system does the Ukrainian MiG-29 currently have, actually? Uh, I, I saw two or three different... Uh, they should be able to go... Mark 2.3, the missile. Uh, air to ground missiles? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Because what, what you just said, what you just said, that there were air defenses up, if they had done flares and would have flown two sorties, meaning one to, uh, one to actually raise the, the air defenses and then, um, shall we say, distract them and two others going in um, from a different angle, um, out of ground, sure, that's technically feasible. That it would explain the speed. Um, not really, and it wouldn't explain the angle. So that shot comes in from very high. That that. Oh, thing okay, sorry, very... I didn't know that. I apologize. Yeah, no, no, no. That you didn't know that because I hadn't said that. Um, so the the thing is, is that even if you, um. And but let let's let's disregard that for a second and let's examine the the premise of fast jets, right? So yeah, there are some munitions that the Ukrainians have that should be able to do something on the order of like Mark two point three to Mark two point five, right? Um but MiG twenty nine can't can't go that fast close to the ground, which is where they would have to be 
to have a reasonable chance of avoiding enemy air defenses. Therefore, if you've got successful interceptions on Mach 2.3 missiles, then why would you not have successful interceptions on, you know, Mach 8, sorry, Mach 0.8 to, you know, 0.9 Mach fighter jets? The fighter jets are much easier targets than the missiles. I agree. This is why we would shoot the missiles uh, as a deflection and then bring in the planes. But if you said that there's a vertical, uh, then it is high mass. It's it's kind of looks that way, doesn't it? Um, You know, I'm, I'm, you know, always open to new evidence coming out telling me I'm wrong. I'm, I'm never done with an investigation until all of the pieces of the puzzle are are laid down but like this looks a lot like HIMARS I gotta tell you it, it 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 yeah there's nothing about this that I can't that I can't look at and go well everything that's wrong with this picture could be the, an artifact of this that or the other kind of error I'll say too, just for our audience, like before Axel was uh, awake uh, or or uh, uh, listening, uh, I asked Portland's question, and I assumed it was a Toshka strike. I asked him, How, "What about these Toshka strikes? It's a Toshka strike, right?" And you know, he said, "Well, let me look at it." And you know, so this is this we di- we didn't lead him down this path. We haven't been we have been prodding him, going, "This got to be high Mars, right?" Uh, you know, I started this question with the assumption, so. Uh, as he said, there's there's data points that are are leading him in this direction. It sounds like he wants maybe one or two more data points to be absolutely sure. But I don't want to I don't want to force us make him say it's a high marks. But uh, you know I think you know you heard it here first, folks. We we think it's a you know we we have a lot of good reasons. We'll put it this way: there's a lot of good reasons to think this is a high mark strike deep in Russian territory, and that's a, a big deal in terms of the reality of the situation on the ground in, in terms of the war. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Back to you, X. Or Portland. But, no, well, it comes back to the uh, strategic uh, calculus, and it comes back to what um, I think Portland and I have been discussing here with a few people uh, throughout the past three weeks. And Monsieur Le Portland said, uh, what did you say? What should Ukraine bomb and uh, shoot at? Um, well, uh, were you asking if they got Atacams, or were you asking... <laughs> <laughs> yes. When we when we discussed it, and we said, okay, they have the gimlers. What should they be shooting at? We started talking about supply lines, uh, oh, yeah. second echelon, third echelon, and then we expanded a little bit um, to the realm of what is now less speculative, because since the last uh, issuance of statements by our American friends that uh, high mass and ammunitions, as opposed to high mass and uh, the M31s. Um, there is hope that the Atacams are coming as expected. And uh, as we discussed here on the space by inference with uh, General Ben Hodges, who also said that, yeah, of course that system should be there, quite literally. So, and at that point in time, you gave me an answer when I asked you, what is your target list? So you have Atacam, you have HIMARS, you have the choice between the Gimlers and Atacams. What's your target list? What did you answer? Well, the first thing that I would whack would be uh, the Kerch Bridge. Uh, then I would hit um, all of the uh, bridges over Seversky Donetsk. Then I would whack uh, all of the rail hubs 
Um, then I would whack um, the air bases at Rostov on Don and Belgorod. Uh, yeah, Taganrog and uh, and Belgorod, um, and then I would work east to west, uh, killing every supply dump and command po- post I could find. Isn't it and sweet? I would basically, stop blowing shit up when I ran out of missiles or the Russians cried uncle. Now, the funny thing is, we by now, at least up until uh, yesterday in the evening, or sorry, this night, when I finally turned in, we were at nine munitions depots, some of which are 90 kilometers away from the front line. That puts them out of Gimla range, right? Well, it, it, I mean, I did tell you that 80 kilometers is, is, is not the maximum range of Gimlas. Um, you know, um, you know, it's, it's the, uh, it's the declared range, but there's no reason Gimlers can't go 95, 97 kilometers. Um, so Ukraine is making full use of the potential of HIMARS and showing us, uh, how the system can actually perform. That's what they're doing. Oh yeah. They're, they're using HIMARS and, and, you know, whatever other launchers they've got for these missiles, to the absolute limit of their capabilities that they're, they're doing incredible work and the uh the raid on melitopol is a thing of beauty you watch those coming in and it's ammo dump ammo dump fuel storage um uh, uh transformer station ammo dump uh fuel storage some other shit that i haven't identified it's it's just like they they made a list and they went down checking fucking names off. It was beautiful. Well, Militopol is where the partisan activity has been strongest in the southeastern flank for many months by now. And Militopol is close enough to the area which uh, Ukrainian armed forces have just liberated. Um, and uh, because they have an attack back, they're going down to Mariupol and Militopol. Yeah, um... You know, I I had some people check for me where the nearest known uh, Ukrainian army positions were. And it's basically uh, 80 kilometers more or less due north. Um, And wouldn't you know, those missiles came in from more or less due north. So, you know, I I think it's... uh, it is interesting that Ukraine has, you know, on the basis of the evidence of that video, really, really, really solid intelligence about where everything that's interesting to blow up in Melitopol is. Yeah, those partisans are absolute fucking heroes. Technical term for American audience late at night. It is a technical term. Hero. Yeah, I think recently which, we heard about a special technical manual is that in, uh, Axel? Uh, Which technical manual do I find that term in, sir? It is Field Manual 23-4, Insurgencies and Countering Insurgencies. It's in Chapter 5, and it's called, uh, the, the, um, the chapter is called Fucking Heroes and What to Do About Fucking Heroes. It is the Field Manual of the British Army, we have to say. Finance, what what are you laughing about? Do, do you open that page with your middle finger only? <laughs> <I didn't laughs> <want to. laughs>
Oh, sorry, I unmuted. We have just reopened the Straight Talk Express. So, uh, all right. So, so the good news is that there's lots of stuff going boom. Um, Melitopol, as you pointed out, has large amounts of partisan activity, and it seems they're losing ammo dumps, command centers, pretty much anything large and useful that's in a concentrated space that a high-risk can attack is. Uh, what does this mean for the potential of the Ukrainian uh, uh, defense forces to retake such a city? That That is a big question. Ooh, okay. Let me think about that. Well, so I think one thing that maybe is an important thing to point out is uh, recently we heard about a special operations force that uh, destroyed a supply convoy. And when I heard about it, I said, what did they destroy it with? Like, you know, anti-tank weapons or what? No, they called in artillery, right? I mean, that seems to be an important part of special operations. I think what we're seeing is special operations forces going behind Russian lines and interacting with partisan groups. And they're telling those partisan groups, hey, you know, the best way, you know, if you can stab a Russian in the back, uh, uh, great. If you can give them a poison dumpling, uh, sure. But also, you know, mark this, mark any good targets, let us know where the HQs are, let us know where the ammo dumps are, and uh, we can bring bring down the uh, God's thumb on them, right? Uh, so I think that's maybe what I'm, what I'm reading here, but I'm not a military expert. Maybe Axel has a little more to say about that. Axel? I think uh, God's thumb is on the scale already. I agree. And uh, if I may ask a personal question, Portland, um, your new avatar and your new affiliation with uh, NAFO, can you speak to that? Because I find it very intriguing. Uh, speak to it how? Um, I, I mean, you know, you, you bully the uh, uh, Russian foreign ministry online. You pay a donation to the Georgian Legion. Uh, they make you an extremely goofy Twitter avatar. No, listen, I personally love it. I'm considering it, and I'm jealous, so that's why I, I love it. Yeah, um, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, uh, but also um, the, the fact that people are already making memes of me standing in the woods next to a piece of wreckage telling you everything that you could possibly need to know about that bit of wreckage is absolutely delightful and it fills me with joy let me tell you something i watched the chatter and there are legions that are elated that portland is part of hashtag nafo so brother you're making a difference no matter you know whatever space you jump in like i am lucky to know you but uh yeah might i don't know i'm looking at maybe getting an avatar like yours it's super nafo. cool Nafo and Walter report. That's right. That's right. You know, somebody's listen. You know, nobody on Walter report has ever asked me to go bully the uh, Russian foreign ministry. So listen, folks. We we here at the Walter report. We absolutely love uh, rocket strikes and missile strikes and drone strikes on Russian territory. There's nothing pleases us more. But, uh, you know, one thing that's really important is right now we, we do need your help. Uh, Maria Aid is currently raising uh, money for 1,000 tourniquets. So we're very close to achieving our goal. So we just want to make sure that everyone, uh, if they can, uh, possible, please donate to Maria Aid. Uh, 
uh, so that we can get those 1,000 tourniquets to the front line. Tourniquets are a very important life-saving tool that medics can use uh, to stop extreme bleeding. Uh, and as uh, anyone with combat experience who's a combat medic like Portland will tell you, uh, it's, it's absolutely important that we get these uh, tourniquets to uh, Ukraine as soon as possible. Uh, lastly, uh, if you guys could retweet the space and uh, let people know about the Waltz Report, it really helps us spread the word. And uh, finally, if you guys have any questions uh, for Portland or for Axel or for anyone on the panel, uh, please come on up and raise your hand. Uh, we're, we're always happy to take your questions. Uh, thank you. Back to you, Axel. Gents, I need five minutes to organize things with stuff. Okay, no worries. So we have uh, Mr. Harvey up. Uh, go ahead, Mr. Harvey. Thank you. I just wanted to uh, give a shout out to Portland. Thank you so much for that um, information. So detailed, so specific. And um, I just really appreciate the knowledge that you're sharing in this space um, and to Axel as well. Um, a question for you, Portland, uh, and for anybody, uh, is something that's been really just on my mind in understanding the war in Ukraine uh, with Russia is air superiority. And uh, Portland, I was just wondering um, if you could, um, you know, let us know a little bit more about your thoughts of with this new technology with high Mars coming in uh, to the play now. Um, you know, how is that going to intersect and how is that going to have um, an influence with the air war going on in Ukraine. Thank you. I mean, oh God, keep guys keep pitching me these big fucking questions, guys. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm a joke with a calculator. It's, and uh, you haven't even answered how to take Melitopol yet. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. I just I, air superiority is just I I feel like is 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 continue to play such a big role and so um i just wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit we need to get okay. uh, colonel jeff back in here remember colonel jeff axel oh right axel's gone sorry sorry yeah we had a guy colonel i do jeff. no was... i i do yeah. i do remember him he's currently i take it somewhere in austria on holiday yeah if we could get him in because he's a air guy and uh, he's very welcome yeah, I would just add that uh, I don't know who the speaker was, but uh, the air over Ukraine, there's a hot mic. The air over Ukraine is uh, contested, so there's no, like, Russian air superiority. Yeah, in terms of, like, HIMARS directly helping, right, um, Russian air defense, uh, they have they have assets on the ground that help them uh, protect uh, their airspace, right? And so... HIMARS is capable if, if Ukraine can see uh, an anti-aircraft uh, uh, system on the ground, then they can use HIMARS to destroy it. So as the HIMARS are deployed uh, forward and they're striking these anti-air defense systems, that gives uh, the Ukrainian Air Force the capability to move further out into formerly Russian-controlled airspace that they can no longer control because these anti-air systems are destroyed. Uh, so Overall, uh, the picture for the Ukrainian Air Force is improving, but, you know, I think that we all agree, at least on the space, that, like, at some point we're going to have to transition Ukraine to NATO aircraft uh, for them to really be successful. It's just, there's just not enough MiGs kind of laying around, uh, but uh, so far they've been very, very, very successful. I would say be, they've, they've so far exceeded expectations that it's hard to even say what they can and can't do with their Air Force in terms of how far they've exceeded our expectations in terms of their Air Force. But uh, that's just my opinion. Uh, thanks. Uh, if yeah. anyone wants to add to that, Liberal, go ahead. Hey, Joseph. Uh, yeah, no, I thought the, um, the speaker was um, discussing air superiority over Ukraine. And I just wanted to follow up with that and say that there is no air superiority. 